1961, the Soviet cosmonaut completed the first manned space flight. And having gazed upon the earth from far above it, he was quoted as saying, I flew into space, but I did not see God there. Seven years later, in 1968, on Christmas Eve, three American astronauts gazing upon the very same earth from the very same vantage point during what was at the time the most watched television broadcast of all time, chose to read the first ten verses of Genesis 1 because when they flew into space, they saw overwhelming evidence of God there. Different people looking at the exact same creation coming to the exact opposite conclusion. On the way to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, Jesus, who was making quite a name for himself because of the miracles he was performing, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Mark 8, 27 through 29. And yet the Pharisees, who also encountered Jesus' miracles firsthand, said of him, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Matthew 12, 24. Different people encountering the same Jesus, coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Concerning biblical scripture, Mark Twain once said, the Bible has noble poetry in it and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. While philosopher, theologian, and New Testament scholar Vern Poitras said, when we come to the Bible and try to listen to its claims, we can easily misjudge those claims if we hear them only from within the framework of our own modern assumptions. Letting the Bible speak for itself, that is, Letting it speak in its own terms includes letting the Bible speak from within its own worldview rather than merely our own. Two great minds encountering the exact same Bible coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Okay, there's no question about it. Believing in and following Jesus Christ is an act of faith no matter how much evidence there is in front of you, even for those who encountered Jesus in the flesh, they still had to choose to believe. Okay, there's no lack of evidence in this world to support the claims of the Bible. In point of fact, there is a surplus of evidence to support the claims of the Bible. There is scientific evidence, circumstantial evidence, historical evidence, archaeological evidence, and there is eyewitness testimony that corroborates the claims of the Bible. And we'll be looking at all of that for the next 11 weeks or so as we work our way through this creation story of Genesis up through the great flood. But listen, no matter how much evidence there is, you still have to choose whether or not to believe it. I can't force you to believe it, and God won't. He created every one of us with a free will. That's why there's sin, by the way, and suffering in the world today. Because he allows human beings to choose to believe in what is right or what is wrong. And what is good or what is evil. What is truth and that which is a lie. And so he provides for us all of the evidence that we need to believe. And also the freedom to choose whether or not to believe it. And to be sure... He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 While at the same time knowing that not all people, of course, will make that choice. 
In fact, he even draws us by his Spirit, John 6, 44. And yet, there are still many who resist the Holy Spirit, as Stephen points out in Acts 7, 51. So as we work our way through these first eight chapters of Genesis together, we're going to examine some of the evidence that is available to us today in support of some of the most foundational claims of the Bible. But look, at the end of it all, you still have to choose. You still have to choose whether or not to believe it, whether or not to accept it, whether or not to trust your entire life and eternity to the truth that he has made available to every single human being on earth. And by the way, it's more than just um, an intellectual assent, right, uh, uh, to accept this truth. It's more than just a series of ancient claims that you have to believe about God. You must accept that truth and actually allow it to completely transform you into a new creation, which is something that only God can do. So uh, the question here is, what do you believe about God? Because we've already seen the difference that people can uh, witness the same evidence, right, and come to very different conclusions. So, So what do you believe about God? Do you believe the claims that he makes about himself in his own word? Or do you believe the, the claims that are made about him by other people in popular culture today? Maybe even popular Christian culture. What do you believe about God? Do you believe in his word as it is written? Or do you believe that it's open for interpretation based on popular sentiment? Or even your own preferences and opinions about uh, who you think God should be? Right? What do you believe about God? It may seem like an unnecessary question to ask in a church full of professing Christians on a Sunday morning, but I would submit to you that there has never been a time in American church history when this question was as necessary as it is today. Biblical orthodoxy in the church is being replaced with moral relativism Postmodern spirituality in many of the doctrines of men. Perhaps this is the most important question that we should be asking outside and indeed inside the church today. What do you believe about God? So we're going to spend the next several weeks exploring some of the evidence that exists in support of the claims about him in his word. Whether or not you choose to accept what his word says about him and then allow that truth to utterly transform your life, well... Uh, That is entirely up to you. So let's turn there together now to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Today's going to be a little bit different than what we're used to because typically we work our way through an entire chapter of the Bible on a Sunday morning, but But today we're going to focus on these four simple words because upon these four simple words stands or falls the balance of the Bible. Everything that we believe, everything that we hold to be true, everything that our faith, our hope, our love, our lives are based upon as Christians, the entire canon of biblical scripture, it all hinges on these four words. In the beginning, God. Individually, these four words speak little specifically to the validation of Scripture, but put them together in this order, and they form the very foundation upon which the entire Bible stands. In fact, many scholars consider Genesis 1-1 to be the single most important verse in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God. 
Listen, because if that much isn't true, then the rest of what we read in this book comes at best into question and is at worst completely irrelevant. But how do we know? Right? How do we know whether or not this statement is true? The church is supposed to be the keeper and the harbinger of truth, but how can we possibly argue, let alone prove, that this profound claim is true? In the beginning, God. Because you understand, nowhere does the Bible actually attempt to prove the existence of an eternal God who dwells outside of and is sovereign over all of time. Now the fact is the Bible doesn't lay out a series of arguments in order to prove God's existence. Rather it assumes right from those first four words that God not only exists but that he has always existed. Okay great, What what do we do with that? As Christians we're charged with defending our faith right first peter three fifteen says in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you so we're told in the bible to be prepared to defend our beliefs and yet the bible doesn't explain how god exists it just says that he does these ancient scriptures they don't give us all of the science behind the creation story it just says that he created it all So right from the beginning, the statement that everything else hangs on, this one statement that if we could prove could validate everything else in these 66 books that make up the Bible, and yet that one statement is written with the simple assumption that it is true without any further explanation. So let's just get this straight. We're supposed to defend something that doesn't tell us how to defend it. That's right. And yet the evidence is not only all around us, it is in fact within us. You see, the first defense that we have that his word is true is simply our faith. Right? We know that faith is an essential ingredient to our salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're saved by God's grace through our faith in Ephesians 2.8. So when the Holy Spirit called you to repentance and you prayed a prayer of faith and then beyond that prayer you began following Jesus Christ, that was a very real act of faith, right? A very real interaction with a very real person, the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the faith that you have embraced and expressed in your life is actually tangible evidence of the existence of God. Certainly uh, it is to you personally. And yet if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life as it should be, then your faith in Christ is also evidence to others that God does in fact exist and is active in his people today. Listen, the moment that I yielded myself to God, when I submitted my life to Christ and invited his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me, I didn't need anyone to tell me that what the Bible said was true. You know why? Because the transforming power of God in my life was so real that I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was who he said he was and that his words in his book were pure truth. Your faith is evidence, it's very real evidence for you personally that God is who he says he is, but it's more than that because I spent uh, much of my life believing in Jesus but not following Jesus. I believed that his word was true, but I still didn't live my life according to it. So again, once I finally submitted the rest of my life to him and began to actually follow him, even though my life was and certainly still is full of imperfections, but my life began to produce spiritual fruit that was undeniable to those around me. 
Why was it undeniable to those around me? Because when you follow Jesus Christ, he leads you into places and circumstances and relationships and challenges and situations that you would never in a thousand years choose for yourself when you're living for yourself. And believe me, people take notice. And then he shows you how to love people who no one else wants to love. And he teaches you how to give out of your need instead of only giving out of plenty. And he gives you peace when by all rights you should be freaking out. And he fills you with hope when everything seems hopeless. And he gives you strength and power and wisdom and insight and clarity in the most difficult circumstances of life. And believe me, people notice. Because it's tangible evidence that God is who he says he is. And so look, if there's no observable spiritual fruit in your life that makes people take notice of God's word being lived out in your life in front of them, then maybe you need to ask the question, what do I believe about God? Because your faith in him should be marked by the undeniable presence of spiritual fruit that comes with living your life by faith. And yet I understand for some unbelievers that's still not enough. There are those who remain unconvinced even when they witness spiritual fruit in the lives of Christ followers firsthand. Fortunately, there is more evidence available than just our faith. In fact, there are other compelling arguments to be made in defense of these four simple words, in the beginning, God. And yes, we're going to talk about uh, creation versus evolution in the weeks to come. But listen, we have to jump this hurdle first. Because if in the beginning, God is not true, if he was not here before all else, if he was not the first, the last, the beginning and the end, if in the beginning God is not true, then we might as well pack up our Bibles and go home. Fortunately, there is more. In fact, there's much more. In addition to our faith, there is our testimony. We just talked about this last week, what we have personally experienced in coming to Christ can be very powerful evidence of the external existence of God, the eternal existence of God to believers and unbelievers alike, particularly those uh, who know us, right? In other words, personal testimonies tend to go much further with people who know us well and who trust us. It's part of the reason we share testimonies within the body of Christ, our own family of faith, right? When, uh, when I share a testimony with you, uh, you're probably more likely to believe what I'm saying because you know me. Hopefully there's enough of a, a relationship there that you trust what I'm telling you to be true, to be something that's actually happened in my own life. Whereas if a complete stranger were to share the same testimony with you, it may not always carry the same weight because you don't know that person. Right? And yet again, when you hear a testimony from someone that you know is a reliable, trustworthy source, someone you have some, uh, some history with, your faith is strengthened. And it can, be further, uh, it can further validate the statements that Scripture makes. Like, in the beginning, God. Because listen, only an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, pre-existent, uncreated God could possibly accomplish all that He's accomplished in your life if you're following Him, which, which strengthens the faith of the believer and it opens the heart and mind of the unbeliever to the truth claims in the Bible about who God is. Okay, I, I hope you can see how important it is that you share your faith and your testimony with others. We talked about it last week. His story and your story. Right, and the power of sharing those two stories together. The gospel is his story. Your testimony is your story. We're supposed to share them both. 
And yet if, you, if you're not willing to do that on a consistent basis, then it may be time for you to ask yourself that question. What do I actually believe about God? Because as you experience the undeniable work of God in your life firsthand, I'm just telling you, you won't be able to wait to tell others about it. Okay, don't ever discount the power and effectiveness of sharing your testimonies. Real life stories about what God has done and is doing in your life and in the lives of others as a way of validating the claims that scripture makes about God. Now, again, if, if you're talking to an atheist about creation versus evolution, for instance, they may not care one bit about your testimony. Sure, particularly if that's not a friend or family member, not someone who knows you or trusts you. But listen, there are always people... There are always people in this world who are so close to accepting the truth of God's word. They read it. They want to believe what it says. They want to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And all they really have left to hear is a testimony from a real person with firsthand experience of the power of God working in their own life. And that's all it takes for that unbeliever to finally put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So look, just don't ever write off the importance of your testimony because it may just be the difference in someone's life who simply needs to hear about what uh, God's word in action in someone's life. We read it last week in Revelation, right? The enemy's defeated by the blood of the lamb, the gospel, and by the word of our testimony. So our faith and our testimony combined are powerful evidence that in the beginning, God is true. Now, of course, the claim can still be made that that evidence is still too subjective, too intrinsically tied to our own preconceived ideas or notions about God, which is why there is also quantifiable, verifiable evidence, scientific, archaeological, historical, and circumstantial evidence, along with eyewitness testimonies to support what the Bible says about God for those who remain unconvinced. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, because it is important that we understand and can articulate some of the apologetic arguments that are available to us in support of the claims of the Bible. Okay? Uh, apologetics is the discipline of defending religious doctrines through systematic arguments. And it's important that we understand those arguments because there will always be people who need to see and hear and experience many convincing proofs. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he came back to visit and further teach the disciples for 40 days before his ascension into heaven. There were those, even those close to him, right, who were unconvinced that it really was Jesus. Some of them just couldn't seem to accept, even after looking at him, that it really was him. So Acts 1-3 says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many Proofs appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Some translations say after suffering, he presented himself to them giving many convincing proofs that he was alive because some of these folks wanted more than just the faith of others. Some of them wanted more than someone else's faith to believe that Jesus was in fact alive. They wanted more than just the testimony of others who had seen him. They wanted convincing proofs now, Jesus could have simply said, sorry, you'll just have to believe and maybe it'll come to you eventually. Just have faith. But he didn't. No, he took the time and he made the effort to present to those who were doubting 
many convincing proofs. It's true that he rebuked at least some for not having faith without seeing. But listen, Jesus also took the time and effort to present convincing physical evidence that he was who he said he was because he knew that some would, re- would remain in disbelief until they saw the physical evidence proving otherwise. John 20, 24 through 29 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, this is, <laughs> this is one of his disciples, he's been with them this whole time, called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So this is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. Testify right now. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas's own faith was faltering. And even after the others he knew and presumably trusted shared their personal testimonies about seeing Jesus firsthand, Thomas still didn't believe. He had yet to be convinced. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. You know he did that just for Thomas. I'm just going to walk through this wall right here, Thomas. That's the first convincing proof for Thomas. And then he said, peace be with you. You know why he said, peace be with you? Because Thomas is shaking in his sandals. Jesus just walked through a wall. Peace be with you. It's okay, calm down. Then he says to Thomas, hey, here's an idea. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You see, only after the physical evidence was present did Thomas believe. Jesus said to him, have you believed? Because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas, he gets an earful for not believing before. But you understand that doesn't change the fact that Jesus still took the time and made the effort to convince Thomas And the others, as we saw in Acts 1-3, with many convincing proofs. Physical evidence. Now, obviously, uh, we cannot produce physical evidence to definitively prove every single verse of the Bible today. At some point along the way, there has to be faith to accept his word as truth. Okay, without question. No argument there. However, once you come to faith in Christ, your job is to defend that faith and speak the truth as we already saw in 1 Peter 3.15. And at times, defending the faith means presenting many convincing proofs to those who have yet to believe. The good news is there are many convincing proofs available to us, which, by the way, we should all be well-versed in. Okay, and so before we get into the creation story over the next few weeks, let's talk about some convincing proofs that the Bible itself is trustworthy and what it says is true, which comes back, of course, to what you believe about God. Because if you're not personally convinced that the Bible is the actual words of God expressed through his people, then you will never be able to defend it as we are commanded to do. And you certainly won't be able to say with any real conviction that in the beginning, God is a true statement. So let's look at some of these convincing proofs. First of all, when you encounter 
someone who's arguing against the validity of Scripture, you will often hear the argument that using the Bible to support the Bible is what is called circular reasoning, which is the process of testing the validity of an idea or a position by its own pronouncements, okay? But you need to understand, using the Bible to prove what the Bible says is true is not, in fact, circular reasoning at all, because the Bible is not a singular autonomous work, right? You know that the Bible is not one book written by one author. Of course, we believe ultimately that God is the author, but the Bible is a collection of 66 very different individual books covering topics including religion, history, law, science, poetry, drama, biography, prophecy, and on and on, right? And it was composed over one and a half millennia, over 1,500 years span of time in three different languages across three different continents with 40 different authors, including those who were educated and uneducated, including kings and peasants, public officials and farmers, teachers and physicians writing from prisons, cities, palaces, dungeons, the wilderness, and at least one remote island. All giving the same message pointing to the same person, Jesus Christ. Do you have any idea left to chance how utterly inconceivable that is? The sheer odds of of that happening without the oversight and direction of a single person over that entire span of time and all those places and all those events, someone like I don't know, like a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, pre-existing, uncreated God. The sheer odds of that happening without someone like him is at best illogical, and quite honestly, it's totally absurd. The undisputed truth is, there is, listen, there's no other compilation of books in all of human history that even comes close to the breadth and depth of works that all fit together perfectly, spanning throughout time as that of the Bible. Not even close. The chances of those 66 books being written and then coming together without divine intervention is impossible Proven by the fact, by the way, that nothing even remotely close to it has ever been replicated before or since. Not even close. And so in that sense, the Bible stands alone, you understand, utterly unique in all of history. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is to say that all Scriptures hold the same authority as if God were to come down and speak it directly to you. That's not just... Old Testament scripture, by the way, this is a very common and very popular argument that people try to make today when they say that during New Testament times, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. That's actually not correct at all. There are multiple passages in the New Testament where the authors cite other New Testament writings as scripture. The Apostle Peter cites Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul cites Luke's writings as Scripture in 1 Timothy 5, 18. We looked at a bunch of them back in our Hebrews series some time ago. Okay, There are references in the New Testament to other New Testament writings as Scripture. So it's not just the Old Testament that Paul's referring to when he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. He's saying, no, all of the Scriptures are the true words of God given to men, not simply the words of men written about God, which, of course, is a profound difference. Okay, so let's look at some of those other convincing proofs. 
uh, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell says that if God created man with a desire to know him, we would expect his message to have some unique properties. And so I'm going to go through these quickly and then we'll take some time on each point. Number one, he says it would be widely distributed so man could attain it easily. Two, it would be preserved through time without corruption. Three, it would be completely accurate historically. Four, it would not be prone to scientific error or false beliefs held by the people of that time. Five, it would present true, unified answers to the difficult questions of life. And the truth is, the Bible stands alone as the only religious text that can claim it meets all of the above criteria. Okay? Let's take a few minutes to look at each one of these so you don't just take my word for it. Uh, some of the evidence that is available con- uh, concerning each one of these points. By the way, um, there's so much more than what we have time to present today. We're going to give you the highlights, all right? So number one, it would be widely distributed so man could easily attain it. The Bible has no competition in this test. It is the single most published book in history with the widest distribution of any published work. It has been translated into more languages than any other book. It is the most sold book in history. It was the first book published with movable type and it is still the number one bestseller of any book of all time. If God were trying to let us know about himself and his plan for us, the Bible certainly qualifies on this point. All other ancient writings fall dramatically short of the Bible in this aspect. Two, it would be preserved through time without corruption. Because ancient writing surfaces, by the way, were natural in their origin. They could decay easily, like papyrus and clay and animal skins of the old world. Uh, They didn't have an incredibly long shelf life. Therefore, we do not have any of the original documents called autographs that the biblical authors wrote. However, we do have copies of the originals called manuscripts, and we can compare them in order to discern what was in the originals and what wasn't. And, of course, the more copies you have from different places and the closer they are in age to the original, that makes the process more assured and the results more reliable, which, by the way, isn't a process that someone came up for, uh, for the Bible. Okay, this is the scientific process, the, the historical and archaeological process. This is what every ancient document discovered receives, this same treatment across the board. So the Bible's held up to the same rigorous test as every ancient document, being tested as to its reli- reliability in the same way. So historians look for copies of the text, right, uh, from where they originated, their age, and a proximity, uh, their proximity to the autographs, Uh, whether or not the documents were quoted in other works, all of that to help them in determining the closest rendering of the text in its original form. Keep all of that in mind. Okay, the Bible has an incredible amount of manuscript evidence to authenticate its message uh, as it was originally written. In fact, every other ancient literary or historical work of all of them, not one of them, Not one of them comes even remotely close to the massive amount of manuscript evidence for the New Testament. Right? If you count all the early copies of translations of the New Testament, the number is over 24,000. That's an astounding amount of ancient historical evidence. It's about 43 times as much as the second most prevalent ancient writing in history, the Iliad which has 643 copies compared to the Bible's 24,000. 
Both the Iliad and the Bible, by the way, were works venerated as sacred writings. And they were both viewed as having answers to questions concerning the supernatural and the afterlife. Both fought attempts at additions, textual changes, and corruption. The Iliad has over 400 lines that are in doubt out of 15,600 total. The New Testament, with 20,000 lines, has 40 lines in doubt, none of which substantially change its message. And yet no one questions the validity of the Iliad and its author and its writing. If we look at the time gap between the original writings and the earliest copies of these texts, again, we see there's no, no comparison with the New Testament. The Iliad has a gap of about 500 years before the first manuscripts appear after the original writings. The earliest manuscripts of biblical writings appear less than 30 years after the original composition. Because of the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and other manuscript discoveries, along with ancient Hebrew sources that quote from the Old Testament, we know that our version of the Old Testament is in the same form that it was in Jesus' day. The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves included almost all of the Old Testament canon, and they date from 250 B.C. to 100 A.D., as well, copies of the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written about 250 B.C., shows the text that we have today as being nearly perfectly preserved. It's astounding. All of this physical evidence to the historical validity of our scriptural text. Okay, number three, it would be completely accurate historically. If the Bible was truly written by God, right, who created the universe then we must look at the facts of history and see whether the Bible reports those facts accurately. There's an abundance of ancient historical writings available to us, many written sources outside of the Bible, many written by non-Christian historians, unbelievers, that corroborate the Bible's documentation of historical events. Flavius Josephus, for instance, was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century AD during the time of Jesus. His writings have been historically verified by many other sources and he not only preserves many traditions about events that are mentioned in the Old Testament but also corroborates the existence of John the Baptist where he writes that Herod had him imprisoned and put to death. He also mentions James as the brother of Jesus along with his death by the high priest Annas and he mentions Jesus himself who he characterizes as a wise man. In fact, he reports in his writings that people viewed Jesus as the Christ and that he appeared to his disciples three days after Pilate put him to death. Josephus was a Jew, but not a follower of Christ. He stood nothing to gain by writing books that perfectly corroborated scripture if it wasn't true. There are other early documents that authenticate biblical accounts. The Jewish Talmud mentions Jesus and records his death on the eve of the Passover. Thallus, a Samaritan historian who wrote in 52 AD, mentions the crucifixion as does Phlegon, the Roman historian. We also have a letter by a Syrian man to his son that was written sometime near the end of the first century or maybe the beginning of the second. The man's name was Mara Bar Serapion and while he was serving a prison sentence, he wrote a letter to encourage his son to charge him to seek wisdom. This is a quote from his letter. He says, what advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for the crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. Note the reference 
to Jesus being put to death is in a historical context. The letter also shows that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews and of course that he was a wise teacher. Uh, Listen, archaeology has borne out the reliability of the Bible. Everywhere archaeologists search, they consistently uncover evidence that supports, not refutes, the Bible as being a true account of history. Archaeological digs have uncovered a stella that's a commemorative stone dedicated to Pontius Pilate and even found the remains of a crucified man with a nail still in the bones of his hand. Until modern times, the Hittites were a group considered to be a mythical people, a fairy tale that was only mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't until A.J. Sace brought forth evidence of their existence in 1876 that the Hittites were generally accepted as they are now as a historically true people group. In fact, the archaeological evidence for the validity of the Bible is so overwhelming that over 25,000 sites mentioned in the Bible have been found. Miller Burrow writes, The more we find that items in the picture of the past presented by the Bible, even though not directly attested, are compatible with what we know from archaeology, the stronger is our impression of general authenticity. He's talking about the Bible. Mere legend or fiction would inevitably betray itself by anachronisms and incongruities. In other words, we can't find any disagreement between our 25,000 archaeological digs and what the Bible says. Nelson Gluick, renowned Jewish archaeologist, said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Do you understand that? That's unbelievable, unless you believe it. Archaeology consistently confirms biblical accounts overwhelmingly. Number four, it would not be prone to scientific error or false beliefs held by the people at the time. If we're to believe that the Bible came from the same source that created the world, (laughs) then it is logical to assume that it would not misrepresent the mechanics of the world. And so it makes sense that only the Bible is devoid. This is a true statement. Do you understand? Only the Bible is devoid of the scientific absurdities that are found in all of the other ancient religious writings that we have. In the Hindu scriptures, it's taught that the earth is set atop the backs of four elephants who in turn stood on a giant sea turtle that was swimming through a milky sea. Okay. Job says he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Chapter 26, verse 7. Isaiah says that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Chapter 40, verse 22. Yet when Genesis was written, the Greeks were beginning to tell of Apollos' flight across the sky in a flaming chariot. The Egyptians were worshiping the sun as Ra, deifying it. The Mesopotamians referred to the sun as Shamash and called it the god of justice. Genesis, however, calls the sun a light in the expanse of the heavens and it views it as a thing that was created by God. The fact that the Bible does not follow the naivety of those ancient religions, it's actually often overlooked since modern man is much more knowledgeable in the mechanics of nature now. Of course, we take for granted that someone touching an infectious person or a corpse should practice good hygiene and wash thoroughly and running water before going on and doing anything else, right? But this discovery that's only been a medical reality for about 150 years 
And yet the book of Leviticus written hundreds of years ago requires this same procedure. You cannot find in the Bible ideas as far-fetched as bloodletting or consuming ram's horn for fertility or all the other mythical cures for ills that were thought to be science in those days. And of course, the Bible's not a science book. It doesn't focus on scientific facts about creation, but where it does mention those things, it is accurate in its representation, which is exactly what you'd expect if the Bible had its origins in the one who created the universe and its scientific laws. Point number five, it would present true, unified answers to the difficult questions of life. Again, as a reminder, we're talking about a collection of different documents that were written over one and a half millennia, devoted to discussing the most controversial and emotionally charged topics that man has ever known. And the truly unfathomable part of that is that they all agree Taken together, the Bible presents a single unified message of actions and attitudes by which man can live. That alone is an unprecedented accomplishment. To have 66 books written by 40 authors from completely different backgrounds and cultures and life experiences to be of the same mind about the same subjects, that is not humanly possible in and of itself, right? Editorial writers in our newspapers can't even agree on a single subject when they come from the same culture and educational backgrounds. Here's just a quick analogy for you, just to demonstrate the remarkability of the accomplishment of the Bible. Imagine a classroom of 40 students at the high school level, 40 students. The teacher has decided on the class writing a novel for a class project. So each student is going to be assigned one chapter of the 40 chapters. Each student assigned one chapter and they will then gather all of the papers together to assemble the finished work. After writing the chapters independent of one another. The topic chosen is why God is important in man's life. But there's no outline and there are no rules as to what that statement means. Because the students are all the same age and live in the same area at the same point in time, they have a tremendous advantage over the biblical writers. And yet to expect that these students would produce a congruent work about why God is important in man's life, right? 40 chapters, let alone 66 books that all agree with one another. It would be patently ridiculous to believe that you would get 40 chapters back that all point to the same answers, to the same questions, to the same person. No way. Right? What you would end up with, and we all know it, would be a completely incoherent mess. This fact alone, that the Bible is a unified message from so many authors over so much time and so many uh, cultures and backgrounds and language and distance, in and of itself is overwhelming evidence that the origin comes from beyond man. And this, of course, this is all a broad overview. I hope you know that. We, we really don't have time today to go into even a sliver of the evidence of the validity of the Bible. There's so much more here. Look, the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus alone are staggering. The coming of the Jewish Messiah is the focus of the Old Testament. There are over 300 separate prophecies about the Holy One of Israel found there. They're so specific as to predict the city of Jesus' birth, Micah 5.2. 
His nature, Isaiah 7, 14. His works of healing and miracles, Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. His suffering, Isaiah 53. His style of execution, Psalm 22. His resurrection, Psalm 16, 10. I can go on and on here. You understand, these prophecies were written anywhere from 400 to a thousand years before Jesus' birth, yet they describe his life with the stunning accuracy of an eyewitness. The odds of a living person meeting even a handful of these predictions are so astronomical, it's considered an impossibility apart from divine intervention. Okay? Just so you know, I took about eight more pages of this out, of this sermon. Really, I took about eight pages out. The historical and prophetic information. We could go on and on and on about today because we don't have time. So I had to cut it short, but there's so much more evidence available to us. Just the body of circumstantial evidence alone is overwhelming. The, the apostles and writers of the New Testament suffered and were executed, save one, because they would not recant their position that the teachings of the Bible are true and accurate. If their testimony was made up for their own gain... Surely at least one of them would have renounced his stand to save his own life, right? But that's not what happened. All of the apostles and writers of the New Testament believed unwaveringly that the Bible was absolute fact. Now think about that for a minute. Honestly, why would you go to all that trouble and willingly accept torture and execution for something that you were making up? You wouldn't do that. I mean, maybe one or two people would lose their minds and they have some kind of death wish, but all of them, <laughs> there is no way. And yet not one of them recanted their faith in Jesus Christ and his word to the death. The circumstantial evidence for the validity of Scripture is so overwhelming, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. The eyewitness evidence couldn't be any stronger. The Apostle John, for instance, he claimed that Jesus was pre-existence. In, in other words, in the beginning, God. He wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1. later in his gospel account, he quotes Jesus as saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8.58, Abraham lived more than 2,000 years earlier. Jesus was claiming to be transcendent over time as we know it, preexistent, sovereign over time itself. Here's why it's so important that John was the one to make those claims uh, and many others about Jesus because John wasn't simply someone who heard about Jesus and decided to believe. And so now he's writing about what he heard from someone else, what someone else saw or heard about Jesus. And he's just trying to go around and convince people about something he heard from someone else. No, this is John, the beloved disciple. He's described in John 13, 23 as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the man who followed Jesus so faithfully that while dying on the cross, Jesus told John and no one else to look after Jesus' own mother. This is the man who was one of only three that Jesus took up on the mountain where he was transfigured before them so they could get a glimpse of his glory. John knew Jesus like no one else. And so if there was ever anyone who was qualified to introduce Jesus to the rest of the world, well, that would be John. Right? Think about it. My wife knows me better than anyone else. So if an author decided to write a biography about my life, which I'm sure is coming. No, not really. But if that were to happen, 
Would he want to interview someone who had heard about me, but never actually met me? Or would he want to interview my wife? Of course, he would want to interview my wife because she's walked with me through life. She knows me. She can testify firsthand to the man that I actually am. And I'm I'm telling you, if you want to know who Jesus actually is, there is no better place to start than the first-hand accounts of his life. Those who were with him in the flesh. And there is none more compelling than John because all those who were with him, of all of them, John knew Jesus the best. So as eyewitness accounts go, there is none more trustworthy, detailed, or insightful than John's first-hand account of Jesus' life. Which means you better believe that I'm going to trust John's word about Jesus over the opinion of some guy uh, in 2021 who's never met him but has decided a couple thousand years later that he knows better than John who Jesus really is. You know, maybe he was a great teacher. Maybe he was a wise man. Maybe he's a model for good moral living, but not the eternally existent, miracle-working Son of God who himself said that Scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35, meaning every single word in Scripture is completely true and reliable. But that's okay, because this guy wrote a book, and he started a podcast and he's got a blog and he made a website about who he thinks Jesus really is and the thing is thousands of people follow it as gospel rather than the writings of the man who was actually there what is wrong with us So after 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, we've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political sensibilities of popular culture in the West. You've got to be kidding me. I'm sorry, but the evidence, scientific, historical, archaeological, circumstantial, and eyewitness, all of which we'll get into more in the weeks to come, it simply does not support anything other than what the Bible actually says. And what the Bible actually says is, in the beginning, God. The question for us today then is, do you actually believe that? What do you believe about God? Because if if it's anything other than what the Bible says about him, then I'm just asking you, what is your source? Is it someone else's doctrine? Is it someone else's opinion? Is it someone else's writing? Is it the prevailing popular thought in our culture today? I don't know, is it a gut feeling? Honestly, what source of evidence is there in existence that supports the claims about God contrary to those in the Bible that can even hold a candle to the evidence that the Bible is true? The fact is there isn't any. Because long before there were doubters, long before there were other philosophies and other religions, Long before anyone could decide they knew better. Long before there were people who would try to refute the claims of the Bible. Listen, long before all of those things, there was God. Let's pray.